Most of us are aware of the fact that WordPress is pretty popular. However, you may be surprised to hear just how popular the open source web platform has become. I'll give you the latest stats on how much of the web is running on WordPress as we near the end of 2016. Plus, the holiday's arrival usually means crowds. As a result, Google can now reportedly tell you how busy or crowded a specific store is at any given time. An interesting story on mobile usability's continued infiltration of the brick-and-mortar shopping experience. Also, color fonts are here and promise to make quite a splash in the realm of web typography. I'll give you the latest details and how, surprisingly enough, web developers can start using them now. Lastly, we'll cover why Krispy Kreme Donuts is an object lesson as to why it's so important to stay true to your brand's core appeal. All this and more on The Rightly Designed Show. No man who cares about originality will ever be original. It's the man who's only thinking about doing a good job or telling the truth who becomes really original and doesn't notice. You're listening to the fusion of form and function. This is the Rightly Designed Show. Hello and welcome to the program. My name is Thomas and this is the Rightly Designed Show. You can call 888-727-1496. That's 888-727-1496 if you'd like to call in and ask a question for the program. You can also visit rightlydesigned.com slash question. So lots to get to today, lots of uh, different things to cover on today's program, so we'll just dive right into it. WordPress recently passed 27% market share and is banking on the customizer. If you're familiar at all with WordPress, it's the part that enables you to kind of drag and drop and really simply and easily customize WordPress. So they're banking on the customizer for continued success. So WP Tavern actually has the story and they say, WordPress now powers 27.1% of all websites on the internet, up from 25% last year. While it may seem that WordPress is neatly adding 2% of the internet every year, its percentage increase fluctuates from year to year and the climb is getting more arduous uh, with more weight to haul. So it's got a little graph here, which is really interesting. And they go through and they just see the, it shows the progression of how much WordPress has just continued to dominate or it's continued its growth in websites that are using the platform. So back in 2011, so January 1st of January, uh, January 1st of 2011, People who were using none, so no specific framework, at least that's listed in this little chart, was 76.4% of the internet. WordPress at that point in time was at 13.1%. Joomla was at 2.6% and Drupal at 1.4%. So that's back in 2011. WordPress was at 13.1%. So flash forward to when they did this, um, when they did this last study. So this would have been November 18th of 2016, and uh, sites using none of the others listed was at, is now at 53.6%, and as I mentioned, WordPress at 27.1%, Joomla at 3.3%, and Drupal at 2.2%. So as you can see, or as you can uh, observed just by those different numbers, WordPress really is gaining quite a bit, and that's only in the span of five years, so that continues to grow. It also says in January 2015, uh, Mullenweg, 
who's the uh, creator, founder of WordPress. So the next goal for WordPress was to achieve 50% market share, the majority of websites. And he identified Jetpack as a key factor in preventing WordPress's decline, a controversial statement delivered at Pressnomics. At that time, Automatic was secretly working on Calypso, WordPress.com's JavaScript-powered interface, but did not unveil the project until November 2015. So a couple of things. If you're not already familiar with it, well, first of all, Automatic is the actual organization or the company that creates WordPress. And then uh, secondly, Jetpack, if you've never used it before, it just kind of, if you've got a, an open source version of WordPress, like if you've got a self-hosted WordPress website, Jetpack just enables a whole bunch of WordPress.com. You know, WordPress.com is the actual, you know, service that WordPress provides you to be able to host with them. Uh, and in there, they've got a whole bunch of features. The Word, the Jetpack plugin enables you to port over a whole bunch of those different features into your WordPress website. So things like uh, stats, you can do like markdown, you can do a whole bunch of, you know, auto loading for posts. And they've got a ton of different features that you can add to it. So it's kind of a mixed bag. Some people really like it. I personally like the stats. I find all the other features that it kind of tacks in there to be a little bit heavy, tends to slow things down a little bit. Um, so I, I tend to stay away from a lot of the other features that they use, but again, that could be just because I'm a developer and I, I, I develop a lot of my features, you know, into different websites myself, but it is interesting to know that WordPress has continued to grow and why this is important and why you'll hear me talk about WordPress so often is there's a lot of benefits to the fact that WordPress has continued to dominate market share. And that is, there's a lot of, there's a lot of benefits to that. So number one, you're going to have more developers out there. You're going to have more people who are not only using, uh, not only using it, but also developing for it, which means that you're much more likely to actually find a solution to the problem you're trying to solve with WordPress, you know, rather than quote unquote, you know, reinvent, reinventing the wheel by trying either a different framework or building one from scratch. So it is good to know that it has continued to grow and that it maintains stability that means that it's something that you can generally rely upon uh, moving forward. So that's interesting to know. Speaking of ingenuity, there's an interesting story by PC Mag that's talking about the fact that Google can now tell you uh, how popular a place is or how busy or crowded a place is uh, directly from their app. So it goes on, it says, Google last year introduced a, quote, popular times feature in search and maps, which lets you see how busy a place typically is at different times of the day and week. Now the web giant is updating that feature with real-time data. If you're one of those people who always needs a plan, you're going to love the, uh, the next new feature. You can see how long people typically stay at a given location, so you can plan your itinerary to the minute. After all, you want to be sure you leave enough time to enjoy a cup of hot chocolate at your local sweet shop before heading out to your dinner reservations. Finally, Google is getting more accurate when it comes to the hours it displays for stores, businesses, and restaurants. Different departments may be open at different times. Think a pharmacy inside a drugstore or a supermarket. And Google will now show that. This way, you'll know what time to pop by the pharmacy, when food delivery begins at a nearby restaurant, and why the service hours at the and what the service hours are at the auto dealership. These features are available within Google Search and Maps. So I thought this was worth taking a quick moment to mention, if for no other reason, just because it's interesting to see how the mobile user, the you know, the mobile experience people, big uh, software giants are creating, is becoming even more and more dynamic. 
one of the things to always keep in mind and why these things are also relevant and, and important to highlight from time to time is the it puts more emphasis on the fact uh, that it's so important to ensure that you're creating a user a really good user experience on the mobile version of your website. So I know I've I've talked about that at length in the past why it's so important to have a responsive website and to make sure that the mobile version of the site works really well and all the features are there to help you know accentuate somebody who's going to be visiting your site from a mobile phone. And so in addition to that, we just see that mobile phones just continue to dominate the way that people shop. So uh, we know that, you know, we know Amazon as being the dominating force when it comes to online retailing. So, you know, when it comes to shopping online, but even Amazon has opened up a number of brick and brick and mortar bookshops. So brick and mortar or physical locations aren't going anywhere. So what you're beginning to see is a lot of technology companies work within that. So they're adapting to, you know, anything from price price point to where, you know, people would take pictures of barcodes, you know, with different apps to be able to calculate, you know, if other stores are cheaper. So there's different apps and technologies like that. And now we're seeing something as simple as how busy a store is, uh, you know, being worked into the mobile experience that Google is trying to provide for all of their users. So again, really interesting. And again, another example of how mobile is becoming more and more dominant in everything that we see and everything that we do in terms of uh, the market share. So another interesting thing, speaking of technology that came out just recently, was the ability to create color fonts. So Chris Coyer actually wrote about this over in uh, CSS Tricks. He's actually been on the program before. And he talks about it and he quotes Adobe. And Adobe said, Adobe gives a little bit of an introduction to it. And it says, Open Type SVG is a font format in which an open type font. Now, if you're not familiar with open type, open type is just a, a format of font. So, for example, there is, you know, so there's an OTF file, and that would be an OTF, that'd be an open type font. There's also true type, which is becoming less and less prominent these days. So, that'd be a TTF file, but that's just for background. So they say open type SVG is a font format in which an open type font has all or just some of its glyphs represented as SVGs. Remember, we talked about SVGs in a previous episode, which are called scalable vector graphics artwork. This allows the display of multiple colors and gradients in a single glyph. Now a glyph in essence is just a character, you know, an individual character in a font file. Because of these features, we also refer to OpenType SVG fonts as color fonts. So according to this, it says that so far, Firefox version 26 plus supports it, and Microsoft's Edge, oddly enough, uh, Microsoft's Edge 38 and plus, you know, and up, support color fonts. So color fonts is a really interesting concept. If you're at all familiar with the way fonts work, it's kind of a whole new dimension being added to the whole typography and how it works on the web. So traditionally, you don't have a color. You just, a font is a font. It's flat, and then you change the color. If you're going to use it, If again, if we're using it on the web, you would use, you know, your, your HTML and CSS to actually change the color of that font. But this enables, you know, with this technology, you actually embed that color directly into that font. So the the closest thing I could compare it to would be like emojis. So we're all pretty familiar with emojis uh, and how they appear differently, you know, between different devices and browsers. So, you know, a smiley face will look different 
on an Android than it will on an iPhone and, you know, different even web browsers on your desktop will display them differently. But web fonts will not do that. Web fonts, if they're, or the color fonts, I should say, the color web fonts will not do that. And they go far beyond just being able to do solid colors. You can actually do gradients. You can do all sorts of different things. And what's really interesting about this, while it does not necessarily support, uh, it's not necessarily supported by very many browsers right now. As I mentioned, it's just Firefox and Edge. Uh, it is usable right now because it actually falls back to a regular font, which means if you're using Chrome or Safari or another browser, it doesn't support the color fonts. It will just fall back to a black and white version. So they've got some examples here in the article, which is really interesting. And so uh, it's got actually an icon font example that somebody has created. So a lot of people, you know, tend to think a font is just going to be, you know, a typeface. A font is just going to be letters and numbers and symbols. But actually there's a, there's a growing number of fonts that contain nothing but symbols. So Font Awesome is one that comes to mind where it's technically a font that you install on your computer or you can use on the web. It's nothing but symbols or icons. So somebody has actually created uh, an icon set using the color font technology. And it's really well done because it's got all the different colors. And so they're basically, they basically look like emojis. It's a similar concept. So it's got all these different icons in color when you're looking at them, uh, when you're using something like Firefox. And then if you switch over to something like Chrome that does not support them, it turns into a black and white, almost line drawing version. So opens up a whole new realm of possibilities. And the great thing about using fonts, of course, as well, over something like, you know, images. It used to be really normal for a lot of people to use a ton of really small images, you know, for their icons or different things like that. The benefit of using a, f a font is that you're only going to load that one file, which contains all the different icons. Uh, so the bottom line is it'll load them a, a lot faster. You know, unlimited resolution since it is an SVG. We talked about that again previously. So a lot of good things kind of coming down the pipe when it comes to web typography. And I definitely think that uh, color fonts is going to be something that continues to grow and continues to develop and make websites much more dynamic. Uh, and one last thing or one other thing I wanted to just mention here briefly. Uh, something I'll do from time to time on Rightly Designed is I will bookmark sites that are really useful and relevant for building a brand. So if you'd like to, you can go to rightlydesign.com slash bookmarks, where I'm always going to save. I'm always adding new websites that I find throughout the web that are really useful. And I just wanted to mention one that I found recently called Logo Miner. So this site is really useful. And what it is, it's, it's kind of like a database, or it's kind of a collection of logos of today's top brands. So this comes in handy for a lot of different reasons. If you're ever getting a new logo design or if you're ever doing something like um, if you're doing, you know, a rebrand, a new logo, starting a new company and you just need some inspiration or you just want to get an idea of the different styles that most brands are taking, uh, you know, different stylistic directions that different brands are taking, it comes in really helpful. Uh, it comes in really handy to be able to look over the different styles that they're creating. So you can actually download each of these logos as an SVG file. So if for whatever reason you ever needed to actually download the file and, and take a look at it in depth, they also provide you with the fonts. So if you've ever been wondering, what font does Red Bull use? Well, you can now know that they use avant-garde gothic book. They also use avant-garde gothic medium and they use avant-garde gothic Demi. 
So there you go. You now know what fonts are used in the Red Bull logo. And they've also got the different uh, hex colors and the color values used in there. So a lot of nitty gritty details. So if you ever come to a point where like, you know, I really, you know, this logo, the color scheme really worked well. I'd like to, you know, try something similar on the logo that I'm working on, or, you know, I want to experiment with some different logo color schemes or, you know, whatever it is. Uh, this site comes in really, really handy. So they have, uh, in addition to just being able to view individual logos, you can actually sort by quite a few things, by industry, by if it's a, you know, a typeface only logo or if it's image based, you can also filter it by the size, the weight of the typeface used. You can filter by color. You can also uh, even filter by typeface style used in the logo. So lots of different tools and feature there, features there definitely worth bookmarking if you are uh, if you're wanting to do any type of logo research whether that's design or you're just having a new logo developed and today's main topic that I wanted to take a little bit of time to talk about today is the Krispy Kreme brand and how we can use that as a bit of an object lesson as to why it is so important to maintain or to stay true to your brand's core appeal but before I do that, I wanted to mention today's sponsor, and that is SaneBox. So you may have heard me talk about SaneBox in the past. It's actually a great tool, and I recently started using it, and I've come to the point now where I rely, rely upon it pretty heavily. Now, SaneBox, what it does is it makes it incredibly easy for you to manage your emails. So if you're like me, you probably get a lot of emails every day, and not all of them are pertinent. You might get some email newsletters here and there. You might get some notifications and you might get a whole bunch of junk mail. You might be surprised just how much time that takes away from you every single day having to sort all of that. So what SaneBox does is that it provides you a wide variety of different features and tools that sorts your mail for you. It's kind of like rules on steroids. It works at the actual mail server level, so it's it works in regardless what type of email service you're using, whether it's Gmail or whether it's something else, uh, and regardless of what kind of client you use. So if you use Apple Mail or you work directly from the web or you use an Android, whatever the tool you use to actually manage and interact with your email, SaneBox will work with it. So uh, it's worked great for me specifically uh, with helping me to hone in this, the emails I want to see first. So over time, I've trained SaneBox. So, you know, any correspondence I have with my clients or customers or questions I get go straight into my inbox. Everything else like newsletters uh, or email notifications or, you know, invoices or any other things go into other folders. You know, they've got a Sane Later folder. So less important emails go there. News goes into a uh, Sane News folder. And I take a look at those later and I can focus on what's important. Uh, another thing that comes in really helpful, if you ever have a problem with junk mail, they've got something called the Sane Black Hole, where you can just toss any old email in there uh, that you never wanted to receive, and it, it works as kind of the ultimate unsubscribe button. It automatically sends all future emails from that sender to your trash. So lots of different features built into it that make it a lot easier to manage your email, to get it under control if it's not already and to make it that much quicker to reach inbox zero. So as a listener to the Rightly Designed show, you're going to get, uh, SaneBox is actually going to offer you a 15-day free trial. So you can jump in there and get your feet wet, test it out, see if it works for you. And in addition to that, they're also going to give you a $15 credit. 
So if you decide Sanebox is for you and you want to continue using it, you can get a $15 credit to continue using the service again at the package, uh, the, the, the package of the service that works best for you. So you can do that if you go to sanebox.com slash rightly designed. Again, that's sanebox.com slash rightly designed to start your 15-day free trial and to get your $15 credit. Have a question for the show? Feel free to visit rightlydesigned.com slash question or call 888-727-1496. Okay, so the main thing I wanted to take a little time to talk about today is a bit of an object lesson. And that object lesson comes from Krispy Kreme Donuts. So if you've never heard of Krispy Kreme Donuts, they were really popular in the late 90s and kind of early 2000s. So I've been to a number of these different, you know, chains that, as I mentioned, they're really popular when I was, you know, quite a bit younger back in the 90s. And so I remember going to one of these, you know, Krispy Kreme Donuts, you know, with my family and it was like this whole big event. So the whole deal was you go in there and you wait in line for however long because when the Krispy Kreme donuts first opened, at least in the location I went to, there was a line out the door. And what it is, the whole idea is they've got a special way that they create donuts. They're not, you know, the normal fluffy cake kind. They're a completely different style. But they actually make them right there at the Krispy Kreme location. So people would wait in line for, you know, however long just to be able to try one of these donuts fresh. So that was kind of their appeal. That was what they were really known for is the specific way that they set up their stores, the, the kind of culture. If you think of Starbucks, most of us have been in a Starbucks. There's a way that Starbucks kind of revolution, revolutionized or modernized or changed the way people drink coffee or think of going to a coffee shop. We've got coffee shops that have sprung up all over the, the nation, all over the world even, that somewhat replicate the way that Starbucks has changed the way, changed the coffee experience. In a small way, that's kind of what Krispy Kreme did for donuts. Rather than just kind of waiting in line and then buying a donut that people have been, you know, it's been sitting there since the morning or it's not quite as exciting, they made it into this whole event. And that became very much the core of their brand appeal. So I remember specifically seeing that myself, uh, you know, in terms of how that Krispy Kreme brand was distinguish distinguishing itself and becoming popular. I remember seeing, you know, uh, even at the, the school I was at at the time, uh, you know, they would bring in donuts like once a week into like the, the cafeteria area or whatever, you know, place where they'd, they'd sell different food or whatever it was. And I remember every now and then they would bring in Krispy Kremes. And every single time they brought in Krispy Kremes, there was a big, long line of students who were waiting there to buy them. And during that time, it was very clear that Krispy Kreme had a clear-cut advantage. And anytime you talk to someone, it was specifically because of the way that they made their donuts and they had, you know, all that, the stuff I've kind of covered before. So in a large way, Krispy Kreme had started to build and to establish this brand. But after time went on, so we got into around 2005, Krispy Kreme started to change the way that it was doing things. And it was, it was changing things mainly because of the fact that their investors were starting to pressure them to begin, you know, kind of growing and boosting their sales. 
So there's a, it's an interesting article that kind of highlights what happened to Krispy Kreme and how things began to go downhill for that really popular, well-established brand that I just described. And it says, in its quest for growth, Krispy Kreme also squandered some of its mystique. They became ubiquitous, says John was, uh, Jonathan Waite, an analyst for KeyBank Capital Markets in Los Angeles. Not just in sheer numbers of restaurant units, but also roughly half of their sales started going to grocery stores, gas stations, and kiosks. Anywhere that consu uh, consumers could be found, you could find a Krispy Kreme. In what amounted to an act of heresy to Krispy Kreme devotees, the company also added smaller satellite stores that didn't actually make donuts. Unlike its factory-style franchises where customers could watch as the pastries were showered in glaze, donut-making theater, quote-unquote, the company called it, some new stores offered donuts that had been made elsewhere. Other products were being added to the menu, too, including a line of high-carb, high-calorie frozen drinks, or, quote, drinkable donuts, as people dubbed them. Straying further from the appeal of its key product, in May 2004, the company announced that it was developing, of all things, a sugar-free donut in response to the popularity of low-carb diets. Uh, the sugarless donut has yet to be rolled out, however, uh, and the new management team is reviewing the concept. So this is an older article, so by now I'm sure that has probably either floated or sunk. But it's an interesting lesson to take away. And after the time that Krispy Kreme started to do this, their sales and their shares started to plummet. I think since then, it's rebounded and it's recovered some, but their brand has received some pretty considerable damage. So there's a lot of things that we can take away from this. So what I described earlier was this whole experience, this perception of what makes Krispy Kreme unique. The whole experience of going in there and buying a hot donut and it tasting a certain way. That's what people have come to expect from Krispy Kreme. That was a huge pivotal part of their brand appeal. So what they did that started to water down that brand was to use that brand to try to further, you know, in, in order to, you know, pursue, you know, capital interests, you know, essentially chasing the money is what, you know, it amounts to and pleasing investors. So over time, they kind of watered down and began to, you know, damage that brand. The moment you open up a store that doesn't do what people expected it to do, you know, that whole experience of going in there and seeing it made fresh and all the things that people were excited about kind of goes down the drain once you go in there and find out that you're just selling somebody else's donuts and you just slapped a Krispy Kreme logo outside the door. So similarly, they started selling the Krispy Kreme brand is, is the best way to say it at, you know, grocery stores and gas stations. I've actually seen this myself even recently. You can just go to a gas station and you can see, you may be familiar with the little donut packs. They got like, you know, six different donuts and they're really small and Usually, you know, they used to be made by Hostess, and I think they still are. But you see these exact same things with the Krispy Kreme label on them. So what they've done is they've, they've kind of banked off the success that they had with that brand, and they've started using it for other things. So they've strayed away from what made them successful in the, you know, in the first place. They've strayed away from that for some short-term gains. So what does that mean for the brand long-term? 
While they may have kind of rebounded with some of their sales, they've permanently damaged their brand in a lot of ways. So how have they done that? They've done that because what made them unique is now ubiquitous. There's nothing different about Krispy Kreme than Hostess. It's just another brand. It's just another type of donut on the shelf. There's nothing unique about it. They've Anything that made Krispy Kreme unique is now gone. So it's not to say that Krispy Kreme can't continue to be successful and they can't even re, you know, rebuild that brand with something new. But this is a good lesson for anybody who's building a brand. And that's why it's so important to determine before you even start that process, what is your brand? What does it stand for? What are the specific tenants that makes you unique? One of the things that I've kind of interwoven through all of the things that I've done at Rightly Designed is to harp on the fact that Rightly Designed is all about craftsmanship. It's all about a custom-tailored, handcrafted approach to design and development with a branding strategy that is interwoven throughout. I've also talked at length about the pitfalls of fast food design and how quick, cheap, and easy design can, you know, harm and hurt a brand in its own regard. If I then were to start offering something like really like templated logo designs, and even if it made me successful for a short period of time, I could see that causing severe long-term damage to the rightly designed brand. So that's why it's really important to keep all of these things in mind. The first step, of course, is to plan out that brand. What does your brand stand for? What makes it unique? What facets of your brand are going to stand out most to people? What's going to you know, cause it to differentiate itself from the competition out there? What's going to uh, help you position in your market properly? So these are all great questions to ask and all things to consider carefully when you are building a brand. So once you've kind of established that, the next step is to ensure that you stick to it. Now, again, that's not to say that it ensures your failure when you begin to deviate from whatever brand strategy that you create. It's also possible to create a bad brand strategy that just doesn't fit a market that is out there or, or a specific need. However, when you've got something that works, like something that Krispy Kreme did that was working, and you begin to deviate from that, you can cause long-term damage to that brand and really stifle its ability to grow. So then the next question might be, okay, so does that mean that I'm stuck doing the same thing over and over again? Does that mean then that Krispy Kreme cannot branch out or grow in any other direction? Absolutely not. It's not to say that they necessarily have to you know, confine themselves only to creating fresh donuts and at those brick and mortar shops, there's a lot of different things that they can do to begin to innovate. They can begin to change, you know, the style of their stores. They can begin adding things to Krispy Kremes that complement, that don't cancel out that main brand identity that they are they originally created, that complement it rather than, you know, canceling it out as they did by just kind of slapping the logo on different products that don't reflect what people found intriguing about the brand to begin with. A great example of this, and people often point to this as a good example, is Apple. We all like to point to Apple for whether, you know, their foibles or the things that they do well. But one of the things that Apple has always championed as a part of their brand is simplicity. And so now one of the things that, uh, you know, Tim Cook and different executives at Apple like to boast is the fact that Apple can can display all of their products on a desk. 
that they have so narrowed down and refined the product selections that they offer at any, at any one point in time down to a, you know, enough uh, that it can fit on a desk. That's how simple it is. It's just one line of products and they don't go 10,000 different directions, even if it meant making them more money. So that's an example. That's a contrast from something like Krispy Kreme that went 10,000 different directions while at the same time watering down their brand. So again, I will leave uh, the whole article. It's actually at a place called CFO.com and it is from 2005. So it's a little bit of a walk down memory lane. So it's a little bit older, but I thought it was a good example. And I'm going to be doing this a little bit more coming up. A lot of the next episodes that I'm going to be covering are going to be pretty specifically branding oriented because I think regardless of what kind of brand you're trying to build, you know, if you've just got a website, if you're an author, if you're a writer, if you've got a small business or even a nonprofit or an organization, a brand is pivotal to all of these things. Without them, it's it makes it nearly impossible to grow and to reach your audience. So I'll be focusing a lot more on brand principles, on specific big brands that do things well, or as in the case of Krispy Kreme, maybe not so well. So you can look forward to that in future episodes. If you'd like to check out today's show notes, uh, obviously I covered quite a few different topics today, quite a few different articles. So there's lots of things that you can see at today's show notes, and you can find those at rightlydesignedshow.com slash 35, where you'll be able to find, again, all of the different links to the different articles that I touched on today. If at any point in time you'd like to ask a question to have potentially featured on the show as well, as I mentioned at the top of the show, you can just call 888-727-1496. That's 888-727-1496. Or you can visit rightlydesigned.com slash question. And as always, I like to ask if you're enjoying the Rightly Designed show, if you wouldn't mind taking a quick moment to visit iTunes, leave us a review. We'd really appreciate that. And we do thank you so much for listening. Uh, so until next week, we continue building that brand and we look forward to providing all sorts of new useful features, uh, all sorts of new useful topics uh, in future episodes. So thanks again for taking the time to listen to the Riley Design Show and we'll see you next week. Enjoying the Rightly Design Show? Please consider taking a quick moment to leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or the channel of your choice. Visit rightlydesign.com slash show for links to these channels and